following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, November 4th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. When I was getting ready to go to college, um, I got a, a big envelope from my dream school. Now, I'm dating myself in that because we didn't use the internet. Um, I didn't own a computer. Um, If you wanted to go to college at that point, you had to contact the school and they would send you a big package. And that package would have all manner of information about the school and and applications that you had to fill out by hand and then mail back to that school. And so I got that big package from my my dream school. And um, it was a dream because there was no way on my own, in my own mediocrity, I could ever get in. But I got the package and I got the application. And I looked at it and I set it down and figured out when am I going to actually try to tackle this, this thing. And to my surprise, the next week, I got the exact same package in the mail again. Same school, same package. And I immediately thought it was a clerical error. I opened it up thinking, well, maybe there's something else in there, something different in there, and there, nothing different. There's the application. There's the lookbook. There's everything else. And I sat down with those two packages and thumbing through them, I finally noticed the difference. It wasn't an error. When I pulled the applications out and put them side by side, they looked exactly the same except for one subtle difference. I don't know if they still do this on the online applications or not, but on the paper applications, there was always a section in the top corner or a bottom corner that was in a gray scale. It's a different color than the rest of the application, and it usually was set apart for the admissions department only, where they would make marks or notations based on that application to make it do whatever they needed it to do to go down the chain. And in that gray scale, on that second application, there was a red stamp. It said athletic department. If you don't know what that means... That means that that application bypasses all of the normal admission standards and channels. It is noted to have a special preference put to it. So there I was with these two applications and a dilemma. Which one do I fill out and send in? Do I fill out the one that is just a snapshot of me and my mediocrity? Or do I send in the one with the big red stamp of approval on it? College applications, they're, they're no different than work resumes. It's just a starter version. It's just you trying to compile all the merits that you can come up with to put your best case forward for why you, the one on the outside of the organization, should be allowed on the inside of the organization. You use both of them to get in somewhere you're on the outside of. They are their own versions of your best case for yourself. We do it when we go to college. We do it when we try to get new jobs. And we would be foolish if we did not at least admit we do it with each other when it comes to relationships. We all have some manner of standards that we are looking for. When we are trying to find a spouse We have an admissions department in our heart. There are certain standards and criteria that have to be met if that application is going to make its way through. 
And when we are looking for a spouse, and even when we're not, when we're just meeting people for the first time, you turn that work resume in, you get that job. All of a sudden, you're now trying to figure out, well, what am I supposed to wear? Where do I go eat? What do I need to do for this person to actually come to know me and like me? We work in this system all the time. It is the default mode of the world in which we live. And it's the default mode of the world in which we live because it it really is the default mode of our hearts. We're always working to make a case for ourselves. We're always working in our heart to compile our, our own best case for why we, on the outside of a relationship, on the outside of a school, on the outside of a job, on the outside of something, ought to be allowed in. And so if you're really honest, it makes complete sense when I would say that you and I do the same thing with God. We naturally try to accumulate and present to him the best case for why we believe he should receive us that we might stand before him. It's what the Bible calls righteousness, right standing before God. It is the central issue at stake for us this morning when we go to God's word in Philippians chapter 3. You see, where we look to establish our confidence, where we look to establish our righteousness before God can lead to two things. It can lead, one, to grave danger, or two, it can lead to an indestructible joy. Grave danger or indestructible joy joy. Listen for both of them this morning as we read Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to spend some time together in that this morning. Philippians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Where we look to establish our confidence before God, where we look for our righteousness before God can lead to either grave danger or indestructible joy. Did you hear it? Look out for the dogs. 
Watch out. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Those are very strong words. It is very important for you and I, if we're going to understand what Paul is saying, that we understand what's at stake here, who he's talking about, and whether or not that threat still remains today. Now, Paul's not talking about multiple groups of people. He's not talking about the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh, as though they're different. Paul is talking about a contingent of Jewish Christians that are known as the Judaizers. And these Judaizers were going into newly established congregations, primarily of Gentile Christians, and trying to teach these Gentile Christians, these new believers in Jesus, that it was not just faith in Christ alone as their Savior and Lord, but faith in Christ and their obedience to different patterns and forms of the Israelite or the Jewish religion that would give them confidence or righteousness to stand before God. If you've been with us for any period of time, you may remember that before we started going through the book of Philippians, we spent half a year going through another letter that Paul wrote to a different church, the church in Galatia, the book of Galatians. That entire letter was written to deal with this very problem in that church. You may remember Paul started that letter saying, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There were some who were coming into the churches distorting the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the grace of God. They were literally emptying the gospel of grace. They were teaching the churches that your confidence before God was not established solely on the person and work of Jesus, but Jesus plus your particular obedience to aspects of God's law. The biggest one that they would push on these Gentile believers is the practice of circumcision. And in trying to compel these new Gentile Christians to not only believe in Christ, but be obedient to particular forms of the law for their confidence and righteousness, they were obscuring the glory and sufficiency of Jesus. Quite literally, Paul will say they are nullifying the work of Jesus on behalf of God for his people. Nullifying grace itself. Galatians 5.2, Paul will say, look, I say to you that if you accept this circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. This warning that Paul is holding out for the churches is so severe because the stakes are so high. And the temptation to establish a confidence to stand before God, the temptation to establish a righteousness before God that is somehow built upon our own morality, our own obedience, our own zeal, the fervency of our faith apart from the object solely of our faith, the temptation to do the very thing that Paul is talking about here is just alive and at work in us as it was in them. This temptation is called legalism. And we throw that word around all the time and 
in sometimes accurate and oftentimes inaccurate ways. Legalism is not simply the desire to be obedient to God's word. Legalism looks to earn their right, our right standing before God through our obedience to God, through our sacrifice for God, through our service to God, through our knowledge about God, through our zeal for God, through the strength of our faith rather than simply the object of our faith. All of these things are ways that our sinful heart likes to begin to build a resume before God. Why we think God should receive us. Why we think God should accept us. Why we believe with confidence that we should stand before God. To take the the resume metaphor a little bit further, like the college application, these are our co-curriculars that you put on there. Everyone trying to get into your school had a 4.0. Everyone took the same IB tests and the same IB classes. Everyone had the same, same common core curriculum. All that's the same. What's going to distinguish you? It's that list of things you do on the outside, right? How you spend your community service hours, all the clubs you're a part of, all the sports you're a part of, all the things that you did. You've got to distinguish yourself somehow from all of that. This is what our heart does. What legalism does is says yes and amen to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in our place for our sin, but to have confidence to stand before God, you've got to get the co-curricular straight. It's my obedience my heart wants to hold on to. It's my zeal my heart wants to hold on to to convince myself that I could stand before God, present that thing to him, and have confidence that he would receive me. And this could not be more dangerous because as we say around here all the time, any addition to the gospel is a distortion of the gospel. If you add anything to the gospel of grace, you no longer have a gospel of grace. Legalism literally empties the gospel of grace. The legalistic impulse, the legalistic temptation, the legalistic heresy our heart loves so much is the opposite of enjoying the grace of God. It's so severe that God in his grace to us issues us this strong warning through Paul. And as Paul issues this warning to the church, he backs it up with with an illustration to help them understand that he gets it. He's not just over here telling them to watch out for something that he doesn't have to watch out for. He's not just alerting them to a temptation that's going to be strong in their heart that he has no no experience with, no understanding of. No, Paul connects his experience with this impulse to this warning. In verses four through six, Paul shares with the church the resume his own heart had established. Look at verse four. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And that's no empty boast. Paul was a uniquely impressive man. Listen to what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day. What that means is that he wasn't a convert to Judaism. He was born into a Jewish family, into a Jewish lineage, and according to God's law, he was circumcised as God had prescribed His family, nor Paul himself, converted to Judaism at a later date. No, he was born into God's people. Not just that, he was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Now, the tribe of Benjamin was one of the two tribes that remained true to David. So what he's alluding to here for those who would hear it is that not only was he born into the people of God, his lineage found itself amongst one of the two houses, two lines of God's people that remained pure and true to David, the future king of Israel, from whom the Messiah would come. It's not just that I was born into this thing. I came from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. While I was born into God's people, into the house of David, I remained strong and convicted in my Jewish bearings. I didn't give in to what was called the Hellenization or, or, or the, or the, or the acculturation to the Greek culture that was so common in that day. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, Paul had attained the highest educational religious standard that he could have achieved in that day. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He set the pace, Paul's saying, for maintaining and pursuing with zeal the glory of God and the purity of God's people. And as to righteousness under the law, as to confidence under what God commands, as to confidence in his obedience to what God commands, blameless. A uniquely impressive man. And what he just said is that all of these things, in and of themselves, they're good things. Nothing wrong with being born into God's people. Nothing wrong with being born into the tribe of Benjamin. Nothing wrong with zeal for God's glory. Nothing wrong with obedience to God's law. Nothing wrong with zeal for the the purity and the holiness of the church. Nothing wrong with any of that. Good things. But they become dangerous things if we begin to place our confidence for right standing with God in them. So Paul issues this warning, then delivers to them the resume that his own heart clinged to prior to the grace of God coming, and then he says this, but, I understand the temptation, I get it, but listen, but, whatever gain I had, Paul's not saying they were bad things, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. The birthright, the education, the zeal, the desire for God's glory through the purity of his people, all of those things I counted as loss. Quite literally, they were crap. That's the word. Yes, it's Sunday and I just said crap. It's probably stronger than that, but we'll stick with that. I count it as loss. Why? What, what makes such impressive qualities look so worthless? Why? I counted them all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth. Literally, that word means the super thing. At one point, Paul's saying, I counted the greatest worth my heart could conceive of related to what I could contribute to my standing before God. The the greatest worth my heart could hold on to were these things. My birthright, my zeal, my obedience, my attainment. But now, because of a super thing, a surpassing worth, I see them all for what they are. In relation to my standing before God, they're worthless. 
But by the grace of God, I've tasted a surpassing worth, Paul says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here we go. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. They're all loss because of the surpassing worth of righteousness that comes from God. The surpassing worth of a right standing before God that comes by grace through his son. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Not just knowing about him, not just knowing truths about him, but now by grace knowing him. The surpassing worth of gaining Christ himself. Gaining Jesus, not simply what he has to offer, but gaining him, the surpassing worth of knowing him and gaining him and being found in him, always of saying the same thing, by the grace of God, I am not standing before God on my own resume. There is a surpassing worth that has made all of those things my heart so loves to be seen for what they are. It's the surpassing worth of not having a righteousness of my own that comes from my obedience, that comes from my zeal, that comes from my fervor to the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the surpassing worth of the righteousness from God, the surpassing worth of knowing that now I can stand before God with confidence. I can have confidence of right standing before God, right standing with God, and it has nothing to do with the resume that I have accumulated for him. It has everything to do with the perfect resume that he has supplied for me in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Paul said, knowing him, being found in him, gaining him, the super thing, has made all of those things that my heart so desperately wants to cling to. It's made them all in my eyes be seen for what they are worth. God stepped in and rescued us from our own futility while we were dead in sin, while we were convinced that the way that we could be made right with God was through our own morality, through our own obedience, through our own definition of being a good person that he would like in our own sin. And he steps in and provides for us the very requirements that we need to stand before him in his holiness. See, Paul's saying at one time, I too thought I had to earn my place before God. And guess what? I was better than all of you. I was going to be at the front of the line. Paul said, according to a righteousness that comes from the law, a righteousness that comes from obedience to God, I was blameless. But all of that was worse, Paul said, than useless. I've realized by the grace of God it's actually damning. The only thing that will count before God is being found in Jesus being found in him with a righteousness that comes from God. Friends, this is the grounds for an indestructible joy. Quite literally, what Paul is expressing and what Paul is saying is the illustrated embodiment of enjoying God's grace. Paul understood in one sense what sin was, 
what God had required, what God had commanded, and what a transgression to God's law was. He knew what sin was in his words, in his thoughts, in his motives, in his actions. But what Paul is helping us to see is that true Christian repentance, the true change from a confidence in our own works to a confidence in who God is for us in Jesus is beginning to see that all of those things our heart thinks make us right before God are just as sinful as those other things. Paul is illustrating for the church here a repentance of his own spiritual resume. He's seeing them for what they are. He sees that he has no confidence in himself anymore. And that all those things that he put his confidence in to stand before God were worthless. Grace has compelled him to repent even of his own self-righteousness. And grace has given him, as it gives us, a new orientation to everything. The grace of God at work by the Spirit of God in our hearts helps us to recognize that our heart wants. The, 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 the working out of the pride that remains in our hearts is a desire to want to take some level of credit for the work of God's grace in our lives, to take the things that are good for our relationship with God and make them the grounds for our standing with God. This is what pride does in our hearts. And the grace of God at works helps us to recognize that our heart wants to take those things and make them the grounds for our righteousness. And so Paul, by the Spirit of God, is reminding us that the gospel, the good news of God's grace to us, not only gives us a, a new way of seeing even our good things, even of seeing our obedience and our zeal, a new way of seeing that those are the working out of God's spirit in us and are the grounds for our standing with God. It gives us a new way of seeing those things, but it gives us more than that. The gospel of God's grace gives us, as we talk about here all the time, an entirely new nature and a new orientation on life. Look up at verse three. This is what Paul was reminding them of after he issues this warning to them. He says, we... God's people who have tasted and known of God's grace through his son, we are the circumcision. Look, those, those dogs, those evildoers, they're the ones coming in thinking they're doing good, thinking they're helping you become clean, but they themselves are the unclean doing evil. They're coming in telling you, they're making you right before God, but all they're doing is mutilating your flesh. No, we we are the ones who, by the Spirit of God, have had grace cut away the condemnation and the guilt of our sin from our heart. We are the ones, as God's Word speaks about, who have been circumcised in heart by God's grace. Friends, Paul is reminding us that if you are here this morning and you understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus, you understand yourself to be a Christian, it is because the very Spirit of God has acted upon your heart when it was dead and has made you alive together with Jesus. It has cut away from your heart the condemnation you deserve for your sins. God has done this work in your heart by His grace and His Spirit. He has given us an entirely new nature that gives us a new orientation, a new outlook, a new way of seeing everything. Paul says now because of this work of grace in our hearts, this right understanding of where our confidence before God comes from, where our righteousness comes from, we become those, he says, who worship by the Spirit of God. 
And when Paul talks about worship there, he's not talking about the the gathered service to, to worship God as we come together, as we sing. He's talking about living our everyday life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what he is saying is that now, by the grace of God, we worship under the guidance and power and even the prompting, the encouragement, the motivation of his spirit. Those that are coming in here, they're trying to get you, Paul says, to put your trust in empty religious rituals. And things that accomplish ultimately for you nothing in your standing before God. But no, we, by the grace of God, are those who worship, empowered and compelled by the very Spirit of God Himself, that we may worship, that we may live our everyday life in all aspects in a manner worthy of the gospel, glorying, He says now, not in ourselves. Glorying is boasting. That's what it's talking about. We've talked about it already in this letter. Glorying is boasting. And what these people, what legalism does is it comes in and it compels you to constantly keep your eyes on yourself that you might be able to boast in yourself. It is the working out of vain glory. But now by the grace of God and the work of God's spirit, that which used to draw our attention only to ourself, the spirit now constantly pushes our attention and pushes our focus on to Jesus. Friends, legalism is so tasty to our hearts because the pride in our hearts loves glory. It is so tasty to our hearts because every single day that we wake up, every single day that the grace of God wakes us up and gives us a new start, we have renewed temptations right in front of us. Renewed temptations to glory in ourselves. Friends, this is the danger of legalism. It is the siren song of the remaining sin in our heart. It is the siren song of the remaining pride in our heart. But Paul is reminding us that we, by the grace of God, have the Spirit of God alive and at work in our hearts. The Spirit that already cut away from our hearts the condemnation of our sin. The Spirit that is alive in our hearts, compelling us and working in us towards God's good pleasure that we live in a manner worthy of the gospel every single day. That Spirit is alive and at work in our hearts hearts, keeping our hearts and our attention and our eyes focused on Jesus, that we might put to death that siren song, the pride plays that wants us constantly to pull ourselves and to pull our confidence towards our obedience, towards our morality, towards those things that our own individual hearts want to hold and cling so desperately to. The Spirit is at work in us, Paul says, by the grace of God to help us as it is called today to put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence when it comes to our standing before God and our zeal or our obedience or our service or our sacrifice for God. See, Paul is helping us again to to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to call ourselves a Christian. A Christian is someone who, by the grace of God, has begun to, to sink the roots of their faith deeply into the solid rock of all that God is for us in his Son. A Christian is simply one who has begun to sink the roots of our confidence to stand before God, our our confidence of salvation, our confidence of forgiveness, our, our confidence of redemption into the bedrock of the gospel, 
The truth that Jesus, the very Son of God, did not, as Paul said, consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant. And in his life on this earth, he lived in joy and obedience, the life that God created each and every single one of us to live. And in obedience to his Father for the joy that was set before him, he willingly died the death that you and I deserve to die for our sin. The consequences and the desert of our sin were placed upon the very Son of God. He suffered what we deserved so that by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, God would accept us, give us right standing before him because of his Son. That is the good news of the gospel. And that is an absolutely alternative way of living and being from the culture that we live in, from the culture of constant resume building, constant tempting, temptation and belief that we can take what God has done for us in his son and hold on to it with one hand, but pad our resume with our other hand so that in some way we can begin to believe that our confidence to stand before him has something to do with what we did. The gospel provides for us by the grace of God an absolutely new way of seeing and living. And it's a grace that is meant by God for us to enjoy on a daily basis. It's a gift that God has given us to enjoy on a daily basis. You know, Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, some of you are probably familiar with Ephesians chapter 6. It's a, it's a fairly famous passage in the New Testament. Paul is talking about the various riches of the gospel and in a metaphorical way, he, he talks about them in a sense of the, as, the, as the armor, as the suit that a soldier would put on to go out to battle and, and the riches of the gospel and how they're, they're like armor for our life. And in Ephesians chapter six, Paul calls the righteousness of God for us in Christ a, a breastplate. Paul says that knowing that Jesus is your righteousness, having your confidence to stand before God, the roots of that confidence sunk deeply into all that God is for you in Jesus, it's like wearing a breastplate into battle. You know, a breastplate in those days would cover the most vital organs, lungs and, and heart and internal organs. Today it would be like saying, having your confidence in Jesus is like going out into battle with a bulletproof vest on. And this is a grace, this is a gift that's meant to be enjoyed by us on a daily basis. And we enjoy it on a daily basis every time that God by his spirit shows us where in our life we have become tempted and giving in to the temptation of somehow establishing our sins of righteousness before God on something that we've done or on how we've lived. See, what happens when those things that your heart clings to so tightly, those things that even unconsciously, you may not say I'm establishing a resume before God with these things, but that's what your heart is doing. What, what happens when those things are threatened, when those things are taken away? All the time in the Bible, and even in contemporary writing and preaching, we talk about these things like idols. Those have become idols our hearts have clung to. Well, put it in a different way. Those are things that are resume that we're using to build our righteousness before God. And what happens when someone takes it away? How do you react? How do you respond? 
When I give a significant amount of my emotion and, and thought and intention and all parts of my life to the ongoing health of the church. That's the, the privilege that God has given me. So my sinful heart and the remaining vestiges of my pride that are constantly trying to build this resume within myself and constantly pulling me away from the, the, the faith that I have and the righteousness I have before God and Jesus and telling me that it's what happens in this church, how people feel about this church, the various metrics of health in this church, that those are somehow the means by which my standing before God is supplemented with Jesus. So what happens when they don't go well? What happens when something that I thought was wise or something that was planned out doesn't go the way that I thought it would go? What, what happens when someone gets in the way of one of those things? How do I react? See, this is the place where my heart can become despondent. This is the place where I can, I can sink into despair when it doesn't go the way I thought it was going to go because, oh my goodness, what's God going to think? It can become the place in my heart that some people that God has, has given to in this church become enemies of my own heart and life because you got in the way. And somehow it not working out is your fault. And that was the thing my heart was clinging to to pad my resume before God. See, when we think about the righteousness of God being a breastplate, protecting us going out into battle, what we're understanding is that when our confidence is solely and increasingly squared in who Jesus is for us and our standing before God is found in him and him alone and not those things, when things go wrong, sure it hurts. We're not stoic. Sure there's sorrow. Sure there's frustration. But the intensity of the frustration, the intensity of the despondency, the intensity of the sorrow. It's not otherworldly. Why? Because my confidence to stand before God forgiven and clean and pure is not based in any of those things. It's based solely on who his son is for me. And yes, like getting shot with a bulletproof vest, it's going to hurt. It's going to leave a mark, but it's not going to destroy me. It's not going to destroy me. When things go wrong, when the things our heart clings to so tightly for right standing with God, get threatened and get taken away, as we're enjoying the grace of God to us in his son, as we are believing together that our righteousness is found in him and him alone, those things and the loss of those things, they don't destroy us like they used to. They don't throw us into such a pit of despair and despondency like they used to. Because they're not the things that our heart needs to stand clean and right before God. And it's not just then. It's not just when those good things are threatened. It's not just when those, those resume patterns are threatened. Think about when you sin, when you violate God's word, when you in intention disobey the, the gracious commands of God to his people. What does your heart do? If you're like me, your heart will immediately want to double down on your best effort and hard work to make up for it. When I see that I have fallen short of the glory of God, like Paul says, in my words, in my actions, in my thoughts, in my motivations, my heart immediately wants to double down on its effort to make up for what I did so that that resume before God isn't destroyed. But what happens when the righteousness of God to us through his son is the breastplate we wear into battle. What happens as we continue to enjoy the righteousness of God to us in Jesus? We enjoy, 
when we literally enjoy the grace of God to us on a daily basis. When we sin, we can begin to say, yes, what I just said, what I just did, what I just thought, the motive behind that particular action, it was wrong. But here's the thing. I don't presume any longer that my standing before God is based on my own righteousness. What I have done is wrong. But here's the thing. Even if I hadn't done it, this is the kicker. Even if I hadn't have done it, I wouldn't have been more worthy to stand in God's presence than I was if I had. Why? Because my righteousness is established solely and completely in who Jesus is for me. What makes me worthy isn't that I did or did not do that thing. What makes me worthy is Jesus. What makes me worthy isn't how big that resume can become through zeal and and obedience and sacrifice and morality and all those things my heart wants to cling so tightly to. What gives me confidence to stand right there is the perfect resume supplied for me in the person and work of his son that I am found in him. By the grace of God, I've gained him. Friends, it's a bulletproof vest. It's the surpassing greatness, the super thing. It is the only thing that matters. Friends, all of us, no matter how long you have been a follower of Jesus, if you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, you all, like Paul, prior to tasting the grace of God, had some kind of resume in your heart. When it came to how you understood your standing before a holy God, you, you had some resume through which you found some level of confidence. And I will tell you with all honesty, it's possible even now on the other side of tasting his grace to still have a list. So the grace of God comes to us through his word and, and it asks us this morning, even as a follower of Jesus, if you're sitting here this morning, where honestly is your confidence found? Where does your heart derive its confidence to stand before God in his holiness? Where did your heart derive confidence to come in this morning and use the voice that he gave you to sing songs of of praise, of of thanks, of, of worship to him? Where did your heart have confidence to come in and do that with a clean conscience and joy? It's so easy for our hearts to move on from delight and joy in Jesus over to our obedience and our zeal and our morality and your whatever it is your heart loves so much. All things that are often biblical, all things that are often encouraged, all things that are wise for our life, all things that God uses as a means of us tasting the goodness of his grace, but never meant to merit the forgiveness of God and right standing before him. Never meant to be means by which we had any level of confidence based on our execution of them. Friends, our righteousness to stand before God is a gift that God gives us by his grace. That's what the gift is through faith in his son. So finally, you know Paul was a preacher, right? I put verse one at the end because it's ironic. Finally, he still has half a book to go. That's how preachers talk. I'm not halfway done. I'm actually done. But we'll end with verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
Enjoy the grace of God to you in Jesus. Enjoy the grace of God and the righteousness that comes from God. Enjoy, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. Friends, that is the best description of this church I think I've ever read and I've never seen it before. We quite literally strive to be a same things church. Paul is literally saying, I'm not saying anything novel to you. To write the same things to you that I've constantly written to you, that I've constantly told you, to continue to point your hearts back to the sufficiency of God's grace for you in his son, to consistently remind you of his grace to you in the gospel, to consistently encourage you to help one another enjoy that grace as you apply the riches of that gospel to your life, to do these same things for you is no trouble to me. I feel no burden to say anything novel or unique. That's what Paul is saying, and we feel the same way here. Why? Because it's good for you. It is the best thing that we can do for each other. It's no trouble for me. It's safe for you because reminding each other, as long as it's called today, of the grace of God to us in his son, helping one another, encouraging one another to enjoy the grace of God is a gift that God gives us that helps to fight and push back this ever-present temptation to put our confidence in the flesh, to put our confidence of standing before God in our own resume, in our own thing, rather than in Jesus alone. Being a same things church, a same things people is one of the best things that we can do. So this morning, maybe you are here, maybe you came in this morning and you didn't know it, you didn't have words for it, you didn't have a category for it, but maybe by the grace of God you have realized as as you've listened and as you've read his word that your heart is holding very tightly to a resume that you are building, that you have some measure of confidence in when it comes to your standing before God. Some level of obedience that you think you've achieved, some desire for morality and a good life that you think would please him, some type of advance or or status maybe that our world holds dear that you think he'll delight in. Maybe you've realized that your heart is holding tight to something and it is placing confidence in that thing and in that resume for standing before God. Some kind of ladder that will allow you to climb into his presence. Something that will provide a solid ground for you to stand on. Friends, I would encourage you this morning not to let this moment pass you by, but to hear the words of the Lord to us through Paul. As for a righteousness before God, when it comes to right standing with God, those things are worthless. Do you want to know Jesus? Do you desire to be found in him? Do you want to treasure him as the surpassing worth? Do you want to see him as the super thing? Do you want the surpassing worth of knowing him as your righteousness? Friends, you simply need to let go of the resume. You need to let go of the resume 
and cast yourself with all that you are onto the righteousness that God provides for you in his son alone. Entrust yourself to him today. Let me encourage you, literally take Paul's confession this morning and make it your own. Take Paul's confession. I have seen by the grace of God that all of these things and all of this confidence that I had, all these reasons why I believed he should accept me, I have seen as worthless because of the surpassing value, the surpassing worth of knowing his son and being found in him. Take Paul's confession and make it your own this morning. And I promise you this morning, Christ will be yours and you will be his. And I promise you Jesus is worth it. He is incomparably better than anything you ever think you could amass, create, and build for yourself. Friends, let me pray for us, and we are going to respond to God's word together this morning. Father, we thank you for the same things message of your word, that you never deviate off of the sufficiency of your son for us, for joy, for forgiveness, for salvation, for redemption, for assurance. There's nothing greater than the surpassing worth of knowing your son, being found in him, gaining him. And I ask this morning that you would do by your Holy Spirit the miracle in every heart here this morning that only you can do. And you would show us where in our hearts we are clinging too tightly for righteousness to something that we have done, something that we have said, how we have lived, where we have given in and continue to give in to the temptation of of building our confidence before you based on our obedience or our fervor or our sacrifice or whatever that is. Help us to see it, that we might turn from it, that we might repent from it, that we might put it to death. Lord, give us by grace the courage to cast ourselves wholly and completely onto your son for righteousness and joy. We want to enjoy him. We want to enjoy your grace. Help us be a same things people that desire to live together in a manner worthy of your gospel, striving to encourage one another as long as it's called today for joy in your son. We ask these things in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.